Well, it feels like the air conditioning is keeping up. Although up here it feels like it's like an oven. I don't know what's going on, if it's just the, the lights or what. But uh, it, it is warm. Well, um, middle school, you are dismissed to Firestarters. Have a fantastic time at Firestarters. We look forward to... We're so, I'm so grateful for Donnie and this team that uh, are just pouring into our young people. Middle school, learning good theology, learning, learning uh, right systems of understanding God. It's so important. So um, we're grateful for them. I'm, I'm grateful for all our teams. Uh, I t- just wanted to say again, thank you to our sound technicians. You guys do such a great job. It's an un... I was just thinking about how it's, it's, it's an unrecognized, just, they, they, they just are so faithful in doing it, and no one notices them unless something goes wrong, right? Like, until it's like, and they're like, what's going on? Then you notice them, but all the times that it goes right, and we're so thankful for everything you do. Appreciate you, Richard, and, and tech team upstairs. You guys are fantastic. And, I mean, there's so much applause, and me, I'm doing a great job, so just keep it up. All right, so... Well, we are, we are wrapping up our series today, God of the Underdogs. Um, and I, I jokingly said last week that I said, uh, I'm, I'm really enjoying the series. And this time I mean it. I really am enjoying it. Uh, no, I really am enjoying the series. And it's been a great series. Today we're closing it out. And next Sunday we're kicking off this Summer in Psalms series. I'm excited to preach this Summer in Psalms next week. It's, uh, it's going to be so, uh, the Psalms are so full of the human experience um, the highs and the lows of going through life and, and so much of it, you can't turn to a psalm and not feel some sort of echo in your own soul of like, yes, I've been there or I am there. And so to be able to peel into those, um, there, 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 actually it wasn't, the psalms weren't all just written by David. There were four different authors of the psalms. We might break into some of those other authors. It's going to be a great time. But today, we're concluding God of the Underdogs. And so we are going to be studying for our last person. I don't know. Did, did, had, had anyone through the series tried to guess what they were going to be as we went through the series? You like trying to make speculation on what, who, who the underdog could be? Uh, someone was mentioning to me their guesses and things. They were all wrong. But uh, uh, today we are talking about someone named Josiah. He was a king. King Josiah. And you might say, well, from the outset, that doesn't sound like much of an underdog. He was a king. He was royalty. He was, he was, he was born a prince. He was born into a, a, pretty, a pretty nice situation. You'd say, well, isn't that kind of a silver spoon in the mouth kind of situation? That doesn't sound like an underdog story. Um, it's kind of like, you know, what is it, Prince Harry? You know, you're like, can we really feel bad for the guy? He's, he's a, he, he seems to be doing just fine. Um, but uh, but, but I'll, I'll give you a reason that I believe Josiah is really an underdog story. So in order to do that... We're going to open with history. I like giving us context of what we're studying, getting a grasp of what, what his story brings to the surface, and surface. So last week we talked about a lesser known character in the Bible by the name of Mephibosheth. And I, it might be the last time I have to say that for a while. I'm kind of grateful for that. We talked about this character who wasn't very talked about throughout the... Or not, it's, just, it's kind of lost to the history of, of time. We don't talk about it much in church. But he has an amazingly interesting story because he's connected to the story of King David. And Mephibosheth um, was brought to the king's table despite the fact he was a condemned man, really. He was directly in the lineage of Saul, who was, uh, his family was the mortal enemy of the dynasty of David. They were at war with each other. It wasn't just that they weren't saying nice things about each other or political opponents. They were warring with each other. And by the, the very status of the blood in his veins, he was a condemned man, but the mercy of David saved Mephibosheth. And so, um, after David was king, his throne was then passed on to 
his son Solomon. He had several sons, but Solomon is the one who came, became king. And Solomon, many of us know his story, he was incredibly wealthy. He was known as the um, most brilliant, wise man in the world, and, uh, and, and which I kind of push back against in some ways. Who has that many wives and can be considered wise? I don't know. But uh, he, he had this immense... The, 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 the kingdom just exploded in size. It was, it was, uh, it was the strongest it had ever been, and, uh, and, and um, it was just a, a great time in the nation. But after... Solomon, things fell apart. There was a schism in the nation. It split in two. The nation actually had split in two originally when David came to power. When David and Saul's families were warring, there was a split. David took what was called Judah in the north, and the the southern part of the kingdom was kind of in Saul's control until David took full strength. After Solomon, that split was finalized, and they never were reunited. They were, they were split. So in the northern kingdom was Judah, and it was two, two of the tribes, and in the southern kingdom was Israel, and it was the other twelve. Um, and so, um, I'm sorry, I said, did I say north? I got him switched around. Northern kingdom was Israel, southern kingdom was Judah. And so each of these kingdoms had their own monarchies. Each of these kings had their own kings and queens, and for 200 years they kind of lived in parallel with each other. Both kingdoms would go on to have a series of kings, most of them bad, but they would kind of go back and forth. As you read through the book of Chronicles and Kings, um, you see a pattern kind of emerge where it'll open each chapter with talking about a king. It'll say, such and such was a king and they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then it'll go to the next king and it might say, such and such was king and they did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And it went back and forth, back and forth. But the thing is, it was like a pendulum going back and forth. And it would, would go to a good point, a high point, but then it would kind of plummet down to a low point. And then it would recover to a good point, but it never would fully recover back to the strength that it had been before. It never became as good as it had been before with a king that was standing for righteousness and holy things. And so the pendulum would get lower and lower and kind of default to a lowest spot. Um, it's like, have you seen those experiments where they like have someone stand against the wall in a bowling ball with a rope to teach physics and they let it go and uh, the, the bowling ball goes across the room and it swings back and the person has to stay against the wall and the bowling ball won't hit him in the face because the law of thermodynamics means it won't reach that full height it had been, right? In the same way with, with Israel, it feels like there's, there's recovery from the evil kings but it never fully recovers to the height it had been before. And so Israel, the, the northern kingdom, went about 200 years through these processes of good kings, bad kings, good kings, bad kings, but ultimately falling further and further from God. And so during this time, while they're having this going on, there was an empire that was growing in the east. And no, it wasn't the dark side of the, you know, Star Wars or something like that, a different empire. It was called the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire was beginning to develop and grow during that time. And finally, at one point, um, actually, as Pastor Ty preached about a couple weeks ago, there was, a, there was a prophet by the name of Jonah. He was from Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and he was called to go to a place called Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. And he was called to go and preach God's judgment against them, and he didn't want to do it for several reasons, as Ty mentioned. It's scary because they want to hurt me. Um, I don't like those people very much. But most of all, he knew that God would spare them. He knew that God was merciful. And the problem was... Jonah also knew the prophecies that had been spoken about Assyria and Israel and that Assyria would ultimately come in and bring God's judgment on Israel. And so if they're spared, that means they can come, come get them. 
And so it was a real problem for Jonah. So, so, so this, this, uh, Jonah hated this. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. In the year 722 BC, Assyria came and they invaded Israel. Israel was not serving God. They had a king that was not serving God. He was doing his own thing. He was doing pagan things, evil things. So God allowed the Assyrians to come in. They took Israel captive and led them into captivity, the ten tribes of Israel. And they never returned, ever. I didn't actually know this myself. I thought maybe when you know they just came back eventually, they never returned. They're actually known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. They were taken off into captivity and they would never return. As, as an aside, so the Assyrians held a certain uh, uh, tactic they would do. They would pull people out of their land and put them somewhere else and then they would put new people in that spot. It was a way of kind of destabilizing the area so that people couldn't rise up against them. And so, do you know the people that they put where Israel was when they took Israel into, ca- into captivity? Do you know the group of people? Were the Samaritans. And we read later in the Bible about the disdain and the hate that the Jews have for the Samaritans. And it's not just that the Samaritans were half Jewish and they didn't like that they were kind of considered not as good. It's because they literally replaced them in the land that was promised to them by God. They hated them because of what happened hundreds of years before being literally replaced by, by, by these people. And so that's a, a, an aside that's something completely separate but a fun fact. So while Israel was led into captivity, the tribes of Judah, though, continued as a sovereign state. Because when Sennacherib, the king of Assyria came down and took Israel into captivity, he then turned his eye to Judah, of course. They're right next to each other. And he thought, I'm going to get Judah now. But Judah happened to be in one of those upswings where they were now serving God. They had a king named Hezekiah who was a godly man. And so Sennacherib finished taking Israel into captivity. He goes, now it's time for Judah. Let's go get him. And he surrounds Jerusalem and Hezekiah calls out to God. and He's like, God, help us. And the angel of the Lord that night went out to this army that had encircled Jerusalem and slayed over 180, it slayed 185,000 of the army of the Assyrians that were surrounding Jerusalem. And Sennacherib said, I think I'm going to go home. And so Sennacherib went home, and when he got home, he went into the temple of his God and was praying there, and a couple of his sons killed him. And so Assyria essentially left Judah alone for a while. They had just suffered a massive defeat. So Judah continued as it was while Israel was in captivity. And so, as we mentioned though, the pendulum pattern swings. And so Hezekiah is a high point for Israel. But there would be two more kings in power before we get to the king we're talking about. I promise we're going to get back to Josiah. I told you we're preaching about Josiah. I promise we'll get there. But Hezekiah, a godly king. But two more kings would come into power before Hezekiah would come into power. So so Hezekiah had a son. And his son... Actually, I'm I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry, I'm going to not say that yet. So, so, So this is why I believe that Josiah is an underdog. Um, because I, I know there's a lot of things in life we can choose. We can choose a lot of things. We can choose our friends, right? My mom used to tell me, Brent, you can pick your friends, and you can pick your nose, but you can't pick your friend's nose. That was a, a bit of wisdom from my mother. But uh, she's like, of all the things you attribute to me, you attribute that saying, I'm sorry. But we can pick our friends, and in our culture, we get to pick our spouse, Right? We get to pick who we're going to marry. You get to pick your dentist. We get to pick our job. There's things we get to pick, but there are things we don't get to choose. We don't get to choose the family that we're born into, right? 
It's not a choice we have. Some of us were born into godly families, into families that serve the Lord. Some of us were born into spiritually indifferent families, couldn't care less. Some of us were born into wicked families. And so Hezekiah has a son, and that son, his name is Manasseh. And Manasseh became king, and he was one of the most wicked, evil kings in Judah's history. He did not serve the Lord, and that's to say it lightly. In 2 Chronicles chapter 33, a chapter before where we're going to be. So open your Bibles with me. I forgot to mention this. Open your Bibles. We're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 34 most of the time today. But in the previous chapter, it tells about this king, about, uh, about Manasseh. It says that if you read through this chapter, that he even used some of his own children as human sacrifices to false gods. He would burn them in the fires to Molech. Talk about depraved. To get to a point where your own children, I would lay down my life for my children. To appease this false god would sacrifice his own children into a fire. That's how fallen this king was. That's how depraved this king was. He practiced sorcery. He practiced divination and witchcraft. He consulted with mediums and psychics. And he built pagan altars, not only just around the kingdom, but in the very temple of Yahweh. He went into the very temple of God and erected these false, these idols to these false gods. So he built what are called high places. And high places were areas dedicated to worshiping idols and they were built on natural heights, like hills. Like people would probably go to like Spencer Butte here or Mount Pisgah and build a, 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 a something to worship their God on these, one of these high places. And, and what would happen is captives or young children would be taken up to these high places and they would be cast down. And they'd be thrown down from these high places and they'd be split open or dashed on the rocks below. And even pregnant women would would be ripped open as an act of worship to these gods. And six specific practices would occur that we're told about at these high places. There would be the burning of incense, there would be sacrificing, there would be eating of sacrificial meals, prostitution, illicit sex, and child sacrifice. These are places of evil, true evil, demonic influence and activity. And just overt sin. And so because of his leadership, because of Manasseh's leadership, sin ran rampant through the kingdom. And can I tell you that crowds follow leadership, right? So as Manasseh did, so the kingdom did. Crowds followed leadership. So the, the, the leadership turned from God and so did the people, so too then did the people of Judah. And in many of the situations, idol worship then was then integrated into the worship of God. They say, this is our heritage from way back in the day. We heard stories about King David and stuff. Let's throw in some of this worship. And so idol worship was actually brought in to the worship of God. As I mentioned before, idols were brought into the very temple. And then sin became to be celebrated as part of a worship of Yahweh. Sin itself was part of the worship. And and it was celebrated as worship of God. And we see that so much in our culture today. People bringing in their sin, their fallenness into their worship of God and celebrating it. Saying, hey, this is part of who I am. This is part of, part of who I am and God loves me for who I am. And so I'm just going to celebrate it. And God accepts me. And this is, this, is just, this is just something to be celebrated. And God warned Manasseh. He continued to, to warn him, do not continue in these ways. But he continued to do those. And so, do you know what happened? Is the Assyrians came back. 
The Assyrians came back and they invaded again, but they didn't take all of Judah into captivity, but they did catch Manasseh. And do you know what they did? They took a hook and they put it through his nose. And then they bound him in bronze chains and they carried him off. He was in captivity himself. But God was merciful to him. He realized he was living a sinful life. He repented. And God restored him back to being king of Judah, which is just an incredible story of God's uh, holding back of his, his, what was just. We see so many times these stories of God's mercy. And so Manasseh comes back and he makes a real effort at restoring the worship of the Lord in Judah. He tears down the altars he had built. He rebuilt the Lord's altar. He encouraged people to start worshiping the Lord. So Manasseh then has a son, and his name is Amon. And Amon has a son, and his name is Josiah. So we finally arrived to Josiah. You're like, oh my goodness, are we just getting to Josiah? We got there. By the time Josiah would have been what we call kindergarten, they didn't really have kindergarten back then. They weren't like doing crafts and stuff, I don't think, like getting the construction paper out. But uh, by the time Josiah was about that age, his grandfather had died. His grandfather Manasseh had died, who was serving God. So he probably didn't really know his grandfather. He probably didn't have a good idea of who he was. So his father, Amon, took over the kingdom. And whatever uh, changes Manasseh had made in his life and in the kingdom clearly didn't take root in Amon. Uh, Amon returned to practicing the wickedness and idol worship of his youth. He brought back the idols. He built the high places. And he was so evil that the people actually turned on him and killed him after just three years of being king. Three years of being king. So now, think about what's happened for Josiah here. The people have executed Amon. Josiah is eight years old now. He would have been going into like the third grade. And Josiah has been taken then and made king for your assassinated father. In place of your assassinated father. Think about Josiah's position. What's happened? His grandfather has died when he was just five years old. He would have hardly known him. In the second grade, his father is murdered. And then he's just dropped into this role of immense responsibility. He has been given the responsibility of a kingdom that's in a tailspin. He's been given responsibility of a country that is so far off the rails, it can't even have leadership stability. They're killing people they don't like. He's, inherit, he's inherited generational curses. This is a serious underdog situation if I've ever heard of one. I can't imagine the responsibility of a child taking the role of king. But here's what it says in the book of 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 25. This is what it says about Josiah. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all of his heart and soul and strength, obeying all of the laws of Moses, and there has never been a king like him since. Wow. Wow. So from such, going from such an underdog story to this, what caused it? Who planted this in Josiah's heart from childhood? We don't really know. The Bible doesn't tell us. It could have been the high priest at the time. It could have been uh, wise rulers that came around him. But whoever influenced him, we do know this. He became the most godly, faithful king that Judah had ever seen. And here's where we're going to continue on. So Second Chronicles, like I promised, will be in Second Chronicles 34. Second Chronicles 34 says this, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and he followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. During the eighth year of his reign, while he was still young, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. If you can take notes or highlight anything, underline that part that says, seek the God of his ancestor, David. 
It's going to be an interesting point that we'll look back on in just a moment. But he begins to seek the God of his ancestor, David. It says during the eighth year of his reign while he was still young. We aren't really told what Josiah did with the first eight years of his reign, right? He's eight years old when he comes to power. And then it says in the eighth year of his reign, he began to seek God. We don't know what happened in those first eight years. My guess is he went through puberty. That was kind of like most of his time was spent doing that. But uh, in the eighth year of his reign, making him 16 years old, something happens. He begins to seek God. Think about what's going on at the age of 16. His priorities, where they go. He's not thinking about just, just chasing girls. He's not thinking about just getting his chariot's license. He begins to seek God. He begins to seek after this God of the ancients that he's heard about. It's got to be very faint stories because David lived 200 years before. He hears these stories. Who is this God? of? Because it says specifically he starts to seek the God of his ancestor, David. And he starts to get this hunger. He starts to search for truth. And he realizes something. He realizes, you know what? I am not my father, Amon. I am not my grandfather even. And while he was still young, he begins to seek God. Listen to me, young people in the house. It is all about your attitude, not about your age. It says while he was still young, it makes a point of saying this. What is it that officially qualifies a person to be used by the Holy Spirit? Is it a number? Is it an age? What officially is the age at which you're determined qualified to lead? We have young people that are qualified in our church to lead in a magnificent and powerful way. You see, your age isn't what qualifies you. And in the same way, your age isn't what disqualifies you. There's a lot of people that say, well, because I'm this age, I should be able to yada, yada, yada. And I can tell you, there's some of you, I'm like, no, that does not qualify you. doesn't matter how old you are, you should not be doing that. But in the same way, your age does not disqualify you. Your age is not something that holds you back. It's something that, truly, it's the hand of God that determines your, 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 your ability to be used. In the New Testament, uh, there's a guy by the name of Paul, an apostle, and he writes a letter to his friend Timothy. And Timothy, apparently, is a whippersnapper. He's a young guy. And he writes him a letter And he specifically says this to Timothy because he recognizes Timothy's about to be a pastor in a church. And he sees the possibility of what could happen. And he says, don't let people look down on you because you're young. But set an example. But set an example. So Josiah said, I may still be considered young. He's a young king. I'm 16. I may be be considered a kid. But I'm going to tell you one thing. I am going to break the cycle of what's been going on. I'm going to break the cycle. The idolatry is going to end here. And let me tell you, church, you can end the cycle in your life. You can be a Josiah in your family, in your environment, and the cycle can end with you. Some of us in this room, your parents were evil. Truly. I have heard stories and I have heard things from from people about dysfunction and abuses that have happened. Let me tell you, the cycle does not have to continue with you. There could be a cycle of alcoholism in your family. It does not have to continue with you. You can be the one that breaks the cycle. There may be a cycle of spiritual indifference or even spiritual abuse in your family. You can be the one that sets and charts a new course in your family. 
Break the cycle. There may be a cycle of selfishness. Perhaps even in your own life, as you look at your life, you say, I've seen these patterns in my own life, but can I tell you, the pattern can end, the cycle can end now, and God can change the course of your life. It can end now and it can end with you. Your past does not determine your future. God has a new plan for you. God has a new plan for you. Sometimes we fear the devil. We fear what our future holds. But can I tell you, when you belong to Jesus, the devil can read your story, but he can't write your story. When you belong to Jesus, he can read your story. He has no business writing your story. A new cycle can begin in your life. But here's the deal. This is the hard part, though. This is where the rubber meets the road. We can get worked up, but let me tell you, it doesn't happen by accident, and it doesn't happen by feeling really warm, fluffy thoughts. Good intentions don't break cycles. It happens by wholeheartedly seeking after God as Josiah did. Wholeheartedly with every portion of your being, saying, God, with my whole heart, with all my soul, my mind, my strength, I give myself to you and completely focus on you. It's not about saying, you know what, God, I really want to break the cycle, so I'm going to try to come to church at least a couple times a year, maybe more, I don't know. I'll try to, I'll try to, I'll try to change some of these habits and these relationships I have, but it rather it comes through a commitment, and that is something we're going to read about in just a moment. So Josiah... At 16, begins to seek God, but then his story continues. So jump ahead with me here. Verse 3, it says this, Then in the twelfth year, in the twelfth year of his reign, so if Josiah was eight when he became king, and in the twelfth year of his reign, how old would that make him? Math majors in here. Twenty. Eight plus twelve. Very good. Wow, we're, it's summer, I know. We're a little rusty, but we'll get it. In the twelfth year, when Josiah is twenty years old, He begins to purify Judah and Jerusalem. He starts destroying the pagan shrines, the Asherah poles, and the carved idols, and the cast images. He orders that the altars of Baal be demolished, and that the incense altars which stood above them be broken down. I want you to listen very carefully to the language that's being used in this as we read. Do you see the finality to everything he's doing to these high places and these statues? It doesn't say he removed them. It doesn't say that he he stored them. He's smashing. He's destroying. He's burning. He also made sure that the Asherah poles, the carved idols, and the cast images were smashed and scattered over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the pagan priests on their own altars, and so he purified Judah and Jerusalem. He did the same thing in the towns of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, even as far as Naphtali and in the regions all around them. He destroyed the pagan altars and the Asherah poles. He crushed the idols into dust. He cut down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. And finally, he returned to Jerusalem. He went on a destruction tour. He went around and it says, finally, this was a long process. This was a big job. And so he goes around and he's destroying all these idols. He's destroying all these high places. And at, at, this, at this age of 20, he begins to purify Jerusalem. And as I was reading this, I was wondering, do you think this was a popular thing to do? I think there would have been a few people that supported him. A couple. But I think the majority of society would have been like, what are you doing? The newspapers would have been writing burn columns about him. The blogs would have been blowing up about him. Because by this point, the idols were their culture. 
By this point, paganism was their heritage. They had been doing this for hundreds of years. It was ingrained in their society. They, have, they probably had people that monetarily gained and profited very well from it. They probably had people that had devoted their lives in sort of a... a, a, a a pastoral role for these idols. That, that, so the, the, the community was very much ingrained with this worship of these, of these idols. And so, so to start tearing these things down, people were emotionally connected to this worship. To tear this down would have just stirred up society and made him angry. And it was a dangerous thing to do. Think about what happened to his dad. They didn't like him, so what did they do? They killed him. He was doing something that was risky. It was, it was taking a risk, but he went out and he did this and he purged the evil from the land. And we look in the story and there's so much evil, but let me tell you, evil isn't new. We look at our world today, evil's not new, right? Throughout history, we see so much evil. I think about the evil we see in our world today and the evil we saw back then. What? I mean, some of that stuff was just unbelievable, but do you know how it became acceptable to start throwing children down and killing them, cutting open the pregnant women, doing these things, sacrificing children in the fire. It's because sin goes through a process. Sin goes from being repulsive and disgusting to being taboo. We just don't talk about it. And then it goes to being acceptable. We accept it, but then it goes to being celebrated. There's a process of sin. Look at our world today. If you stand for holiness, you're labeled a bigot. I'm not just talking about if you speak out against sin that you're viewed as intolerant. If, if you don't celebrate sin, you're viewed as a bigot. If you aren't celebrating my sin, you're hateful. Think about our world and, 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 and this, this, this backward mentality starts to get into culture and it gets so backwards it actually starts to devour itself. And it starts to get confu- confused itself and, it, and, and, and so the sin starts to become so permeated and, and throughout culture and, 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 and in the same way that we see back then, we see that sin is fla- flaunted and, and even those that commit sin then are, are encouraged and called brave. And to call out sin is considered hateful. And so Josiah was taking a risk. People that didn't like his dad killed him. What a risk for him to go across the grain of culture, to begin tearing down the idols in the high places. But he did it. He committed to it and he did it. And let me tell you, church, that we need to tear down the idols. We are called to tear down the idols. And I'm not just talking about becoming a keyboard warrior and going out there and calling all the stuff bad and stuff on Facebook. That's uh, telling the world they're going to hell in the handbasket and Facebook is probably not going to change many minds. If anything, you'll turn people off to truth when they have the opportunity to hear it. It starts with ourselves and our own, real, our own realm of uh, impact that we have, our own sphere of influence. And so has, uh, Josiah had a bigger sphere of influence than most of us would have. A monarchy is a different thing than even a democracy we live in now. What the king says goes, right? And so he recognized, my sphere of influence is big. And so I'm going to tear down the idols, literal idols throughout this land. But for us, what is your sphere of influence? It starts with ourselves. When we remove the idols that are in our own lives, it takes away and eliminates our option to return to them. 
When we begin to tear down the idols in our own hearts, in our own lives, the things we let stand, it removes the ability for us to go back to them. Do you remember the language we just read where it says that Josiah goes through and he's smashing these things into dust. He's burning them into ashes. So they can't be something that can be reassembled back into a God, something that can be reassembled back into a place of worship. He's going, this is no longer going to be somewhere we can return to. Take it away, make it something we can't return to. Some of us in this room, we need to remove the option to return. We need to get rid of the option to return. You might need to change your cell phone number. There's someone that's been contacting you, you don't need to be talking to. Some of us, there might be an app that needs to be deleted and never gone back to. Some of us, we might need to flush some pills down the toilet. A bottle might need to go down the toilet. A medicine, medicine cabinet gone through, a, a, a liquor cabinet gone through. Perhaps a relationship needs to be ended that's not healthy that you have been engaging in, that you have no business in. You may need to remove your computer to another part, a public part of the house, or I'm going to say this, you may even need to get rid of your computer altogether. And you say, that sounds really extreme. It is. In the book of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking and he says, If your eye causes you to sin, even if it's your good eye, pop that baby out. He says, and if your hand causes you to sin, even if it's your good hand, chop that off. He says, it's better to go into heaven without your hand or your eye than to go to hell with a perfectly put together functioning body. This life is but a vapor. And it's gone. Eternity is so long compared to how brief this life is. And I know the older we get, the more we recognize how quick it goes. This life is but a breath. Now, Jesus, was he literally saying, you should be having a bunch of blind people walking around here, people without hands and stuff. I'm not giving you machetes on your way out the door today. No, it's an allegory, right? What is worth the price of your soul? What are you willing to pay for eternity? As long as the option is still there, one day the temptation will overtake you. Sometimes we dance with the devil. Say, oh, I can handle it. And rather than fleeing from temptation, we give the enemy a foothold. So what are you willing to trade for your soul? What are you willing to give up? So Josiah removed any chance of return for the nation. He ripped it out. He was ruthless. He didn't make bargains with the devil. He said, it's out of here. And he tore it out. And the idols were destroyed. Continuing on in Josiah's story, we're wrapping up here in just a moment. In the 18th year of his reign, after he purified the land and the temple, Josiah appointed, oh boy, we're getting to the names here. Forgive me. Shaphan, son of Azaliah, Maaseh, the governor of Jerusalem, and Joah, the son of Jehoahaz, the royal historian, to repair the temple of the Lord, his God. Do you remember I had you underline at the beginning of this that when Josiah was 16, he began to seek who? The God of David. Now whose God is it? His God. There's been a change in Josiah's life. 
There's been a moment where it's no longer just seeking after somebody else's God, but God has become His God. And so He begins to repair the temple of the Lord, His God. Moving down to verse 14. While they were bringing out the money collected at the Lord's temple, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law the Lord had, uh, uh, the book of the law of the Lord that was written by Moses. Jump down to verse 18. So Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. And when the king heard what was written in the law, he tore his clothes in despair. So here's what's happened. Josiah has purged the land of all the idols. And he goes, now it's time to tidy up the temple. And the temple had gone into serious repair. If you're finding tons of money in the temple, that thing has been ignored a while. They found money in there. They're pulling out all kinds of stuff. And as they're pulling stuff out, they find the, the book of the law. That would be the Torah that was written by Moses. And they bring it to him and they say, check this out, an old document. It's like the Declaration of Independence. I don't know, it's cool. And they're like, let's read it. So they open it up and they read it to Josiah. And as he hears it, he begins to break down in, 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 and realizes in horror what was being read to him. Because even after they were living, even after deciding, I'm going to seek God, and even after smashing all the idols and living for God, he knew that in the reading of the law, that he and all the people had broken every single command that the book of the law had in it. The judgments pronounced in it were sure to follow. See, there were judgments for breaking the law. And he recognized, even though I've served God with everything I've got, I've sinned. And everybody else in this kingdom has too. We're doomed. And he, 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 he's like, what do we do? We are, we are doomed people. And, and the truth is, they were doomed people. Despite living with the best of intentions, despite seeking God, and despite breaking down the bad things, they were still doomed because they had broken the law. You see, where there is ignorance, it doesn't mean that we are without excuse. Just because we're ignorant to something doesn't mean we're without excuse. I like to think ignorance is bliss. It's not true. If I were driving 70 miles an hour through a school zone on a Tuesday in the fall at 2.55 p.m. And a police officer pulled me over and said, what are you doing driving so fast? And I said, I didn't know the speed limit. I didn't even see the sign. Would that police officer go, oh, oh, you didn't know. Well, please, just be more careful next time. Have a great day. He would write me the fattest ticket you've ever seen. If not throwing me in cuffs. Because my ignorance to the speed limit does not remove me from the responsibility of it. In the same way, the law, we can be ignorant to it. We can even intentionally be ignorant to it. La, 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 la. But the ignorance does not remove the truth of it and that we are responsible for its result. And Josiah recognizes, we are doomed. We have been breaking the law. God is going to bring judgment. And he he seeks of God and God says, sure enough, you are. You are going to be judged. But because I see in you, you've humbled yourself, your despair and your repentance at your sin, I'm going to withhold this disaster that I'm going to pour out, was going to pour out on you. He withholds this judgment. And so Josiah summons all of the people in in Jerusalem and in Judah and he brings them together at the temple. And here's what it says in verse 31. In verse 31 it says, The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and he renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence and he pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all of his commands, his laws and decrees with all his heart and soul. He promised to obey the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll. 
and who required everyone. Now make note of that word, he required. He required everyone in Jerusalem and the people of Benjamin to make a similar pledge. The people of Jerusalem did so, renewing their covenant with God, the God of their ancestors. And like Josiah, church, let me tell you, we are called and we need to renew the covenant. He recognized their fall from their fall from falling short with the law and disobeying God, so he renewed the covenant. In church, let me tell you, we must renew the covenant. And the renewal of the covenant is a personal call. If you read Josiah, Josiah's grandfather, Manasseh, we talked about him earlier. In his story, after he comes back to God, after he's able to come back and be king. It says that he encouraged people. If you read in chapter 33, it says he encouraged the people to worship the God of Israel. That's a good step. It's a lot better than what he was doing. He encouraged them. But then Josiah was full of fervor, right? And he served God with all this zeal. And so it says he required the people to serve the Lord, right? It says he made it a law. It became the law. But can I tell you that true repentance can't be coerced. Despite Josiah doing what was right and and bringing the people back to God, you can't draw people to God by compulsion. If we made Christianity the law of the United States, it would not make people right with God. It's like the story of a child whose mother tells him, "There's a this wouldn't happen in my own family, um, but uh, at a restaurant and there's a little boy who, who keeps standing up in the, in the booth and looking over the edge at the other people eating in the other booth. He keeps looking at him. She says, sit down. And he keeps doing it, looking over, sit down, sit down, sit down, sit down. And finally, she says, if you don't sit down, I'm going to give you a spanking. So the little boy sits down and crosses his arms and says, my body is sitting down, but in my heart I'm still standing up. In the same way, that's how the people of Israel responded. We see later, after Josiah dies, they go right back to the way they were living before. And the Assyrians were taken over by Babylon, and Babylon eventually comes down and takes Judah into captivity themselves for 70 years. They live in Babylon. I've said this before. You can't legislate morality. You can't force someone or obligate someone into right relationship with God. It's something we can't do. It's about a heart thing. It's about saying, I need you, God. I recognize my sin, my fallenness. My pride is getting in the way, and I need to make myself open before you and recognize my own sin and that I need you, that I've been a rebel to you, God. I've chosen my own way and I need to repent and come to you and I need to address this. But too often, it's lip service we give God and then our hearts are far from him. The prophet Isaiah saw this exact thing happening 50 years before Josiah became king. He wrote to Judah, the kingdom of Judah, he wrote this. He, he wrote in, in Isaiah chapter 29, he says, The Lord says, These people say that they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship of me is nothing but man-made rules learned by rote. Today, we're not called to religion. We're not called to just going through motions. We're called to relationship with the king. Humbling ourselves before him. So this morning, it's time to do business with God. Let's take a few moments, just us and God. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Let me ask you this morning, where is your heart? Are you doing the motions and saying the words that are required, but is your heart far from him?
This morning, I, I call to you. I call to you. Come back to the Lord. Return to Him this morning. See, the Israelites had to go into captivity for 70 years before they returned to God. And sometimes our hard hearts have to be broken by punishment before they can be healed by God's grace. But I implore of you to return to God before we need to have our hard hearts broken. Soften your heart before Him right now. So with our heads bowed and eyes closed, I want to offer this response to two groups of people. First, if you have never given your heart to Jesus, you have never surrendered to Him, and you've been living life on your own terms, and you recognize, man, there's, there's a lot of law that has been broken. I am not right with God. I, don't, I can't guarantee that I've done everything right. And I want to know that I stand right with God so one day when I do, step to the other side of eternity, and I see God face to face, I'll know if, without a shadow of a doubt that I stand right with Him. If that's you, I want to give you the opportunity to respond, but also... If you have been letting idols be built up in your life and you have not been destroying them, but you've been returning to them, there's things that have taken your attention, that have taken your heart, and maybe you've even been celebrating them as part of your worship of God today. I call for you to destroy those idols. Lay them down. Destroy them completely. Don't allow the enemy a foothold and return to God. So right now, with our heads bowed and eyes closed, if that's you, if you've never given your heart to Jesus, or if you are returning to Him and saying, I need to destroy some idols today, Pastor Brent, right now, with every head bowed and every eye closed, raise your hand and raise it high. I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. See those hands. Anybody else? Yes, I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. You can put your hands down right now. Church, right now, I want us to pray this prayer together. It's a prayer of consecrating our hearts for our King. It's not in the words that we say, but it's in the position of our heart. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and coming after me. Thank you for not letting me die in my sin, but coming to take my place. I place you as King of my heart. I decide to follow you with every day of my life. I choose to destroy the idols that have taken your place. Remove them from my life and serve you wholly. Be my king and be my God. Thank you, Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen. As the ushers are getting ready to take the offering and everything, um, I just wanted to take just a few minutes to, to highlight a few themes that we heard in the sermon today. Um, as we're looking at our connect cards, you have those both physically in front of you, or if you pull out your phone, we have it on nlcchurch.com slash connect. I just encourage you, uh, firstly, Pastor Brett mentioned starting a new destiny, a new covenant. Can I just tell you, that, that was my story. Um, 
I grew up in a home that was broken. There was a lot of addiction and, and horrible relationships and witchcraft, but God's changed my life and has changed my destiny. And what I'm thankful for is as me and my wife look to start our own family with our own kids, we have a chance to start a new covenant with God. And so a way to, to celebrate that for us and for you guys is to, to dedicate our children. I know that sounds like a weird religious thing where we just go through the motions, but it's a way for us as a family and as a community of faith to say that we're going to point our kids to Jesus no matter the situation. Yep. That we're going to make much of Jesus in our family, and we're going to do our best as a church to come alongside them and help them do it. Yep. And I tell you, there's nothing more important than that in the mission of the church. To come alongside one another, love each other, and point each other towards Jesus. Secondly, if you're somebody that has responded uh, for today being your day of salvation, or if you're somebody looking to pray for a hard situation you're in, or even if God's brought you through something recently, Make sure to fill that out on the connect card as well. We want to pray for you. We want to believe with you. But we also want to celebrate with you. Yeah. The Bible says that we overcome the enemy by the blood of Jesus and the word of what? Our testimonies. We have the Bible. We have prayer, which are both awesome. But I think sometimes we neglect our testimony. So let's be people that foster our testimony as well so that other people can see what God's done for us, see what God's done in the past, and believe what he can do in the future. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go head and stand. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to pass around the buckets. God, and I thank you for who you are and what you will continue to do. God, we thank you for these awesome stories where we get to see how you've worked in the past. But God, we're thankful that when Jesus left this earth, he sent the Holy Spirit and said, the great things I have done, you will do greater things. I pray that we'd be a church that looks to make much of you, that it's not about the miracles per se, but those would be a sign that people know the power of God is present. God, that you are changing lives, that you are beginning to make yourself known, and you're starting with us here today. I pray that we would be obedient and faithful people that seek to make much of you, no matter where we go. We thank you for who you are and what you will continue to do. In your name I pray, amen. We're going to pass around the buckets, and we are going to worship one last time. Amen. All right, let's sing this together. With all our heart, with all our soul, with all our Blessed, blessed day, New Life Church. Grab a popsicle on.